LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, how exercise helps us find happiness, hope, and connection. Here's something I found interesting about my journey hosting this show. I've now done more than 150 interviews, I can't believe it, with some of the world's most interesting thinkers, many of my favorite authors. We've covered everything from the origins of human consciousness to the invention of the bicycle. And yet, as far-ranging and disconnected as our subject matter may sometimes seem, consistent themes have emerged. One example, the idea that life is a team sport and creativity is fundamentally a collaborative act. That's something I discussed with Annie Murphy-Paul, Arthur Brooks, and Malcolm Gladwell. Another topic that's of great personal interest to me is our emerging view that there are essentially four pillars of health. You know what they are. Eat well, nurture your relationships, get a good night's sleep, and move your body, exercise. I discussed eating well with Dr. Tim Spector, whose book, Food for Life, caused me to eat way more mushrooms and fermented foods. I still refer to that book often. The value of relationships and community has come up countless times with guests like Lydia Denworth and Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. But exercise, that's one topic that has eluded us. It's not as if there's a shortage of books on the subject. Stroll through the fitness section of your local bookstore, and you'll find dozens of titles that claim to hold the secret to next-level abs and prison yard biceps. Flipping through these books, I've wondered, where are the books rooted in science? The books that try to explain, using psychology and neuroscience, what happens when we run around, play sports, lift heavy things? Is it connected to our evolutionary past? And why is it so important to our bodies, brains, and overall well-being? Then I remembered a book that came across my desk several years ago, Kelly McGonigal's The Joy of Movement, How Exercise Helps Us Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and Courage. It's an exuberant, well-researched deep dive into the physical and neurochemical benefits that await you if you learn to fall in love with exercise. This is what I find so powerful about Kelly's take. She makes a case for reframing exercise as something that is joyful, that has the potential to delight us and animate our lives, rather than a daily chore, an obligation, which is how I sometimes think of it. I love this reframing. I think so many of the ways we want to change ourselves can be reframed this way as choices to live more fully in ways that are more connected, to live with more collective effervescence, as our curator Adam Grant would say. So we wrote to Kelly, who teaches psychology and neuroscience at Stanford, as well as dance and spin classes on the side, and asked if she could come on the show to talk about how we can all take advantage of the mood-boosting, relationship-deepening power of movement right now. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Kelly McGonigal, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. 
You have written a book, The Joy of Movement, How Exercise Helps Us to Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and Courage, that is a love letter to movement. We all know that exercise is something we're supposed to do. We know that it's good for us. Now, having read your book, I know that it's even better for us than I realized. And yet, broadly speaking, we don't do enough of it. I just read that according to the CDC, 80% of Americans don't get the recommended amount of exercise. Do you think there's something wrong with the way we think about exercise as a culture? Well, I think there are a lot of things wrong with how we think about movement and also a lot of ways that society makes it difficult to move as much as might benefit us most. But I think that the mindset that most gets in the way of fully benefiting from movement is this idea that our bodies are, you know, this thing that you drag around Mm -hmm. and you have to exercise it in order to make it look a certain way or prevent a disease in the future, but it's almost like a punishment for enjoying life. Like you ate something and now you have to burn it off. Whereas, you know, movement is basically how you engage with life through Mm -hmm. your body. And I, you know, I believe that movement is one of the most important things you can do to experience all of the instinctive joys that humans have that make life worth living. It's a really different mindset then, you know, you ate something, so go burn it off. Absolutely. I think so many of us feel guilty about not exercising enough. It's it's sort of a medicine. It's a prescription that we're supposed to take. Yeah. And when you think of it as medicine or you think of it as punishment or you think of it as a chore, you're often less likely to find the activities that you actually enjoy. And so I think it's so important to start by thinking about, like, what do you want more of in your life? And what's the physical activity that's going to give you that experience. I think that I had a masochistic relationship with exercise growing up because I was sort of encouraged to do serious endurance sports. I ended up on the varsity swimming team. And I remember in the climax of a race, I was a backstroker, it was my specialty, looking over at the guy next to me and he's just, his face is just knotted up like a fist, like, ah, you know, and I'm all, my face is knotted up. And I just think, this is a pain contest. Like this is, at this point, we're basically equally good at doing the backstroke and we're inches away from each other. And the question is who wants to endure more pain? And it's not me. And I slowed down and lost the race and quit the swim team. And it was one of the happiest moments of my life. Now, that's not normally the way you, (laughs) these, these triumphal stories end, right? It's a great story. And it also gives me a chance to say, when I say the joy of movement, people sometimes think I'm talking about it can be, it has to be easy. It has to always be pleasurable. It has to be a party. Actually, I think for a lot of people to get to that place where you're learning how to endure suffering, but you're doing it because it feels meaningful. It's a challenge that you want to take on. It's a story that you want to be able to tell about yourself and what you're capable of. That's a totally different experience. That's a real joy that physical Mm -hmm. activity can give us. And you recognized in that moment, that was not your experience. This was not the race for you. And paying attention to how we relate to different forms of, of movement or exercise, you know, that's, that's part of the path. Yeah. And we know, you know, we, we had a very interesting conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke, um, who I think is also at Stanford, who had done all this interesting research about addiction and talks about the hedonic set point and the sort of the glow people feel after having challenging experiences. But what becomes apparent reading your book is that there's an enormous amount of pleasure 
that we are wired to to experience when we move. It's really kind of great news, right? We, we have these bodies that are, are naturally have evolved to experience enormous pleasure that most people I think that would think of as the runner's high. Triathlete Scott Dunlap says that he would equate the runner's high to two Red Bulls and vodka, three ibuprofen, plus a $50 winning lotto ticket in your pocket. <laughs> right? Yeah, and with inflation, um, it's probably gone up since, that's since right. then. <laughs> that's right. There was someone else you quote who, who says, the runner's high makes you want to stop everyone you pass and tell them how beautiful they are, what a wonderful world this is. Isn't it great to be alive? It's a profoundly powerful experience for, for a lot of people. Yes. So let's talk about what this is. First of all, I included both of those quotes because the runner's high, which is actually, I call it a persistence high. It's the brain chemistry that kicks in when you've been active at a moderate intensity for about 20 minutes or so. This idea that you are engaged, you are moving continuously, your brain recognizes I'm doing something that requires energy and effort. And if it's with a purpose, you're gonna get the high a lot more easily than if you deep down believe there's no purpose to what you're doing, which might be why it's harder to get a, a runner's high on a treadmill rather than when you're out exploring the world um, running. But it also, you don't have to run to get this high. I'm not a runner. And I most reliably get it through other cardiovascular training, like kickboxing and dancing and flow yoga. So really anything where you're moving and you just keep moving, and it's not the hardest thing you could possibly do, that's the sweet spot. And this brain chemistry, it's rooted in endocannabinoids. The endocannabinoid system, it's the same brain system that cannabis tries to get in there and mimic. But when it's naturally activated through exercise, this increase in endocannabinoids, it basically dials down everything going on in your brain that we could call suffering, physical pain, fatigue, but also worrying, self-criticism, anger, stress, and then also amplifies anything good that might be going on, hope about the future, confidence in yourself, um, and especially the joys of social connection, which mm, I think is so, so fascinating yeah. that the the brain chemistry of an exercise high actually makes it easier to connect with other people. So if you're someone who deals with social anxiety or conflict, or if you're like me, an introvert, after you've been moving your body for 20 minutes, it's just so much easier to connect, to talk, to hug someone, to enjoy cooperating with someone. That's a great side effect of the exercise high. But a lot of times people will focus first on the fact that it, it just makes you feel less stressed. It makes you feel empowered and hopeful. I often call it embodied hope. What's the distinction between endorphins, endocannabinoids, and then myokines, which mm. is this kind of new discovery? Yeah. So if you think about how movement affects the brain, it can trigger the release of a lot of chemicals that make us feel better. As soon as you are active... If you've been sitting and then you use some part of your body, any muscles, get your heart rate up a little, you're going to get more dopamine and adrenaline. And that makes you feel more empowered, more motivated, more energized. Endocannabinoids are that, that brain chemistry, again, that just dials down the bad stuff and increases all of your positive emotions, positive states, that like 20 minute moderate intensity. Endorphins kick in with other forms of movement, but it's a lot. So endorphins um, are more likely to give you like a euphoria, but they also work with endocannabinoids and dopamine and adrenaline to make you feel amazing. So all these systems work together. 
But that endorphin rush from exercise, you're most likely to get it when you're moving to music, music that you love, when you move in synchrony with other people, and when you do things that are really hard. And in that case, the endorphins are kind of a stress response, like a positive mm, stress. Those endorphins are released during extreme effort as a way to reduce pain and fatigue and help you keep going when, like when you were in that, uh, that swimming competition, if you were gonna you know, really push through and do everything you can, mm -hmm. the endorphins help with that. But endorphins like endocannabinoids also make it easier to connect with other people. Endorphins are like a social bonding agent. So mm -hmm. when your endorphins are high and my endorphins are high and we're together, we like each other more, we trust each other more, we feel more similar and closer. And so, you know, that's another reason why when we exercise with other people, either to music or in synchrony or doing really hard things, we often form these amazing support relationships or we get a sense of belonging. And the connection to mental health is astonishing. I found it fascinating that the scientists were trying to find people to volunteer, people who exercise regularly, to volunteer to stop exercising, to find out what would happen. And they couldn't get people to do it. <laughs> right? Yes. Like, the people they, were like, they you offered... couldn't pay me enough money right. to stop. Right, right, right. But but I guess, I guess they found some people eventually to do this. When adults were randomly assigned to reduce their daily step count, 88% became more depressed 31% reported a decrease in life satisfaction after a week of decreased uh, yeah. movement. And the level of activity that they were engaged in was just about the average uh, that the, the typical American engages in. Like when I saw that number. So if you want to make somebody depressed and, and less satisfied with life, have them be as active as the typical American. And it really makes you think that a sedentary lifestyle is probably causing some incidents of depression and lack of love for life. And yeah. I think it's so important, yeah. you know, yeah. this is never about blaming people. I am the yeah. last person in the world. You know, I almost don't care what other people do. I just want people to live the life that they want. And most people want more joy and more connection and more meaning. So I see myself as not an advocate to go out and say everybody has to move their bodies. But if you're suffering, if you're struggling and what you're seeking is joy or resilience or connection or meaning, I love letting people know about the fact that movement is a real viable strategy. Yes. And that it's something that we can just increase incrementally, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that one can start taking a short walk every day and just increase the walk by a small amount. Or maybe if you feel up to it, you know, run a hundred feet at the end of, of the walk and then, you know, and then the next day, 110 feet, right? But it's, it's, you, and, and we can be rewarded. There's, there's this opportunity for a virtuous cycle, you know? And one of the things I've found in life is that, is that I think that, finding an entry ramp onto a virtuous cycle of sort of healthy behavior begets good feelings, begets more healthy behavior, that recognizing that it, it can be a very gradual entry ramp onto that virtuous cycle that, that can change your life. So let's talk a little bit about the biochemistry of why you need to trust that cycle also. So when it comes to something like the exercise high or any of the rewards that you get from movement, research suggests they aren't automatic if you have not been engaging in activity. 
So if you really, you're, you're not very active, you don't exercise on purpose, and then you go for a walk or a run or you do some workout on YouTube, probably you're not going to get a big hit of endocannabinoids or endorphins. It's similar to the training effect that exercise has on your body. So the first time you do a cardio workout, it takes time for your heart and your blood vessels, your whole cardiorespiratory system to physically adapt mm -hmm, and change mm -hmm. itself so that your heart is stronger and you have more ability to feed your muscles with blood and your muscles are better at using the energy that the blood is delivering. There are physical structural changes that take place that make that activity easier and more enjoyable. The same is true for training strength. Your muscles change, your nervous system changes, bone strength, whatever the benefits of exercise are, it takes time for your physical body to adapt. And that's when people really start to fall in love with workouts physically. And the same is true with your brain. Um, I mentioned six weeks, whether you're looking at animal studies or human studies, it seems like around six weeks, your brain is really changing in terms of its function and even its structure so that it's easier to reward you for movement. You're going to get a, a stronger exercise high. You're going to get this brain chemistry that makes the activity itself more enjoyable and makes you feel incredible afterward. And it's a training effect just like any other physical challenge training effect. So you have to find ways to get through those first month to six weeks mm -hmm, and not mm -hmm. quit because you went for a walk and you didn't get an endorphin rush. You have to find a way to support yourself through that, like, like in any virtuous cycle that you're trying to build. And, and you would say that when we look at the ways of getting onto that on-ramp, that music, mm. certainly in your own life, right? Music has been a great driver. Nature mm -hmm. uh, delivers another layer of, of, of rewards, right? Being, yep. being near, near bodies of water, among trees and, uh, and natural environments. Also competition sometimes or play. Music is particularly interesting because the way that the brain hears music is as an invitation to move. So the right playlist can make you run longer or lift heavier uh, or give something your all and, and enjoy it more at the same time. And when we look at the different kinds of exercise that we can do, and, and you really emphasize in the book that there's so many different varieties of great movement experiences, different dosages, you would say, right? I mean, different, different degrees of, of extremity of, of engaging in these types of movement. Can we talk about the smallest dose? Yes. I don't even think I mentioned this in the book. I've been I've been out there, you know, talking about this for a while, and I've realized um, the feel better effect is this observation that as little as a couple of minutes of movement almost always makes people feel more positive and uh, have more energy or feel more balanced in their energy. So if you're in a bad mood or you're tired or you're stressed out. I always say, just put on a song because it's, you know, mm -hmm. a good radio edit is three minutes and that dose is sufficient moving in any way. There's almost no floor in terms of intensity. You can take a few deep breaths. Maybe you lift your arms overhead. You are already in the zone of having a feel better effect. And some studies have actually tried to see if you can undermine this by making people do activities that should be really unpleasant, like climbing a dark stairwell. And even then, a couple minutes, people are like, wow, I feel great. I have more energy and my mood has improved. So that's a really small dose.
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. As a non-masochist, my relationship to exercise has evolved over the years. As I mentioned, I sort of, you know, had a triumphant moment deciding that I'm not a hyper-competitive endurance athlete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've always loved racket sports. And that's, a, a, you know, I like chasing a ball with a collection of friends is just utterly joyful for me. Uh, and and I think, and we'll get into the evolutionary story, which is so fascinating, but but I, I feel like it's as close to sort of a group hunting experience as I can mm. have, right? To have, to be running around a squash court or a tennis court or, you know, with friends. But I found myself, Kelly, after years of sort of, of I think in my 20s, I think I was, um, you know, not exercising regularly, but I've gradually just increased a habit of running from maybe it was once a week to twice. And now I, every single day, I'm, I'm really quite addicted to it. Like mm-hmm. I, every morning, if I'm not playing a racket sport, I, I go running. And it's, I, I, had a, I had an experience a couple months ago where I, I, I twisted my, my knee skiing. And I knew from past experience that I needed to stay off the knee to let it properly heal. But it was torture <laughs> to not to be deprived of my morning run because it's such a transformative. I mean, that feeling you have afterwards. I, I can't say that I relish it in the beginning of the Mm-mm. run. <laughs> I've started to like it towards the end, but I really like it when I'm done. Can we talk about this as not addiction, but dependence? This was a really important mm-hmm. distinction I wanted to make. Okay, um, There is such a thing as exercise addiction. Addiction is, is usually described as something that is dramatically interfering with the quality of your life, your safety, your relationships, your ability to to function in the world. But we're dependent on a lot of things that can actually help us thrive in the world. I mean, the most obvious example is food. We are dependent on food. We need it. It nourishes us. If we're deprived of it, we are not the best version of ourselves. And for many people... Physical activity is something that is so important biologically, psychologically, and socially that we do become dependent on it. And I think it is it is wonderful to embrace the fact that you can learn to depend on something that supports you. 
It's like learning to trust people who care about you. Human beings have a biological connection system that allows us to become dependent and interdependent. It's part of what has allowed humans to survive. We often think of that in terms of, of human beings, that we have to learn to trust and depend on some people or we, we can't survive. And I think the same is true for activities that give us the biological support we need, but also that, that make us feel good about ourselves and good about the world. That connection between what we get from our interactions with other people and community and what we get from exercise is so fascinating. And I think maybe the best way into it is to, is to segue into the evolutionary story of why it is that we have this incredible cocktail of chemicals that reward us for moving our bodies through the world. Just to set you up, you, know, you say the story begins two million years ago when a major climactic event cooled the earth and changed the landscape of East Africa, where early humans were. Forested areas became more patchy and transformed into open woodlands and grasslands. So how did this change the evolution of our bodies? Yeah. So this is a story that anthropologists will tell you, right? This is not my my insight into human nature. But the, the story, which I think is really interesting, is that as human beings had to travel further in order to find food, um, they needed to physically be able to hike and run to hunt and, and forage and gather in new ways. And the human beings who survived were the ones who had these physical adaptations that made hunting and foraging and gathering easier. So some of them are structural, like a bigger gluteus maximus that's really good for hiking and running, changes in the structure of, of your feet that make walking and hiking and running easier. But also one of these adaptations is having a brain that will give you energy and motivation when you are on a sustained hunt or a sustained mm. Uh, gathering of a food. And that would be what we now call this persistence high. It's related to having to persist in finding food and bringing it back to share with your community. And actually the thing that, uh, you know, I got really fascinated, I kept, I kept asking anthropologists if they agreed with me, is because the thing that, that I love about the persistence high is how it makes social connection and cooperation easier. And so I'm thinking like, this is great, this persistence high that makes it easier to continue the hunt or continue to collect food and bring it back. It's literally setting you up to want to share it with others, which is part of what allowed humans to survive. It's not everyone is on their own. If you can't kill something you don't eat tonight, right? Human beings share. And if we have a biochemical side effect of the physical effort of hunting or, or gathering that then makes us more likely to cooperate, more likely to get a warm glow when you like feed your neighbor uh, and share that food together. Right? That's, a, that's a nice adaptation to have. And I, I think that's part of what we experience when we move with other people is we're, we're also tapping into the instinct to get a warm glow from interdependent living. We, we had a great conversation with Christopher Ryan, who, who's an anthropologist who wrote a wonderful book called Civilized to Death. He told us that in almost every, I believe in every single hunter-gatherer uh, community that has been studied, there's a powerful taboo against hoarding food. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost universally true that in all, all, all of these communities, 
Um, at the end of a hunt, the food is shared with everyone in the tribe. And we can imagine how this, this cocktail of, of collaborative and euphoric neurochemicals that, that were released at the end of a hunt would, would encourage that behavior. Yeah. And you can think about how many forms of recreational activity now that are really popular. It's because they tap into these two instincts together, which are, are you know, meant to go together or evolved to go together. Like whether you look at something like recreational sports or something like CrossFit, where people are doing incredibly hard things, but together and cheering one another on. When you look at um, at races where, you know, people on the sidelines are cheering on the runners um, or like what I do, I teach dance classes and we're tackling some complicated choreography and doing it together and celebrating one another. I think the the most popular forms of movement are really filling both of these needs for us. And it's a great, great way for people, again, who are looking for ways to re-engage with physical activity to ask yourself, okay, what's my version of the going for the hunt or foraging and then sharing it afterwards. Like, what's my version of that where I get to do something kind of hard and physical with other people? And at the same time, part of that experience is collaborative or cooperative or allows us to connect and share with one another. One of the things I find so inspiring about that your chapter on our our evolution and the connection to to movement is that we've evolved to become such extraordinary long distance runners and walkers as a highly mediocre runner kelly one of the things that to me was very very exciting about reading this section is is realizing that much in the same way that, you know that humans you know astonishingly humans can outrun most other animals uh, for lo- long distance runs right we uh, many of us have heard this even for those of us who are not great runners or great swimmers or great w- whatever it is we are uniquely adapted to moving to you know long distance walking and running and we all have this sort of biological potential in us mm-hmm. and many people don't actually discover that until they try an activity that maybe they'd always thought wasn't for them. So I don't know that I'm actually born to run, but I know that when I hear music, it goes into my brain and body in a certain way that demands expression. And when I'm dancing, I I literally feel like I was born for this. And I heard so many people tell me they had a similar experience when they tried a form of movement that was new to them. You know, one woman, she lifted a kettlebell and learned how to swing a kettlebell. And she thought she hated exercise, but she was like, this is incredible. This sensation is powerful and pleasurable, and it makes me feel like I could take on the world. So I also think in addition to the idea that, that you know, human beings, yes, we all have this ability to move, to engage with life. That's part of our human inheritance, partly due to your personality, partly due to your nervous system and your body. There is going to be a form of movement, you know, my prediction is, that will make you feel like I was born for this and to, to take that on as a, an exploration, as a challenge to find it, especially if you're somebody who had really negative experiences growing up. I mean, if I hadn't found dance, I don't know what I would have done because I was that kid in 
gym class in PE who was literally pulled out of regular PE because I was so clumsy and so slow. I couldn't do the normal kid activities. Me and this one other kid were pulled out for remedial gym class. And I, I bet that there are lots of people listening to this who have had negative experiences either with sports or with exercise where they've been shamed or their body just didn't feel like it worked the way it was supposed to. And that doesn't mean that there's not an activity out there. But for you, it might be, you know, gardening and restoration work out in nature. Um, maybe you want to lift heavy things. Maybe you do want to throw things. Maybe you want to throw axes, which for, you know, that's a, a satisfying activity that's gotten some yeah. some play recently. That's right. And oddly combined with drinking beer, which I which is surprising. But so, so that's such an interesting part of your story, Kelly. So you would not have described yourself as an athlete as a child, mm -mm. Mm -mm. but but you discovered dancing and 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 dance movement classes. Can you tell us about how you discovered it and what that path was like? Yeah, I mean, early on, it was through very simple simple means. My mom was somebody who was, you know, it was the. 80s. And so there was a yeah. big push to always be on a diet, always be trying to lose weight. And she would occasionally pick up these exercise VHS tapes at garage sales uh, with the idea that she would start exercising at home. So she never did, but I did. I started with jazzercise tapes and other workouts that really were about enjoying music and moving in synchrony with other people. And I discovered that even though I literally could not catch a ball to save my life, it was really easy for me to follow along and to synchronize my body with the beat of music and with what other people were doing. I love to dance, Kelly, and I've really. I've, um, I love to dance. Yes, uh, uh, I I don't have to watch myself dance. Other people have to do that, but <laughs> but I love I love moving to music. I was just at the New Orleans Jazz Festival dancing in the streets. I just it makes me it gives me so much joy. I, I could imagine just waking up in the morning and just dancing for you know, 40 minutes or something. But I think I have, this may not reflect well on me, but I think when I'm in a dance class environment where there are 25 people doing exactly what the instructor is doing, I think it triggers a little bit of my issues with authority. <laughs> I, I completely understand. I know a lot of people you know? like that, that resistance. I feel the same way in, in other exercise formats too. It's like when I do a really hard workout, I like to do it at home using right. like an on-demand video because yeah. I don't want people observing me. Like I want it to be, right. feel really autonomous. I'm doing this because I'm choosing to do it. But also you're giving me an opportunity to talk about something that is like a core thread of all of my work, which is that human beings, we are a set of conflicting instincts and impulses. Mm, right. And, you know, my, my goal in life is to help people who want to emphasize one instinct over the other, like say compassion over hostility or hope over despair, is to, you know, to find a way to choose that and strengthen it and train it. Um, but to never expect that there's going to be a version of you that doesn't carry the competing impulse. You could totally go into a dance class and know, I'm bringing my that that resistance along with me, that's okay. It can be here. It doesn't have to actually destroy the experience. I think a lot of things we do in life, it's like with my anxiety, I've given up hope that there's going to be a version of my life where I do everything that challenges me and and I've managed to get rid of the anxiety instinct. No, courage, mm -hmm. courage mm -hmm. comes along with fear. It's okay. They, they all get to come along for the ride. Well, and I think some people, I, I think for me, 
exercise became a way of of releasing anxiety and feeling good by myself while learning. So I, I have a ritual of I, I listen to podcasts and audiobooks while I run in the morning, which which is partly for my job. I I I sort of do a lot of reading, <laughs> so mm-hmm. so it's an important piece of that. But it also became a kind of lovely kind of quiet space for me, um, exercising in the morning. Um, When I was living a a life with several young children and building companies with dozens of people, I was sort of overstimulated socially and exercise became a sort of refuge for me Mm -hmm. that was very solitary and beautiful in that way. Now, post-COVID, we work remotely. And I think I would be more open after reading your book. I I kind of think, you know what? I, I think I will try a group run or a group, you know, dance class or whatever it is, because there is something very powerful about that, uh, that overlap of community and exercise. Uh, but there are so many flavors of, of, of movement. Yeah. And for you, it might be, you said racquetball, right? Uh, yes. Racket Squ- sports. Squash, tennis, ping pong, although I'm not sure I'm getting my heart rate quite as high with a ping pong. Just sing along while you do ping pong. And that's because, you know, singing is actually a great cardiovascular right. workout. Yes. Can we do like karaoke ping pong? Is there a market for that? Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Two things. It's like it's like peanut butter and chocolate. That's a, that's a brilliant idea. I love that. Reading is a form of meditation that makes you smarter. It's a radical act of patience in this frenetic, tech-addicted world we all live in. And the data shows reading is a kind of miracle drug. It reduces stress, increases motivation, improves sleep. It's correlated with more success, higher income. And books don't run out of batteries. But what to read? We at the Next Big Idea Club can help you with that. You've heard about our app, which provides daily book summaries from the authors themselves, but have you heard about our box subscription? Go to nextbigideaclub.com to learn all about it. Here's the short version. Sign up for a Next Big Idea Club hardcover box subscription, and you will get four boxes per year, each containing two books, that's eight books per year, and not just any books, the best books of the season, according to our four legendary curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant. Plus, we discuss the books with the authors and distill them into exclusive audio e-courses. Go to nextbigideaclub.com and become a member of our growing community. What do you think about the way that we compartmentalize movement in our lives today. I mean, I sometimes think it's kind of funny that we we pay a fair amount of money for a gym membership. We go to the gym, and then we pay other people to lift our luggage in the airport. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like there are benefits to not just moving our bodies for forty five minutes a day in the morning, but doing so throughout the day. Maybe getting walking and other forms of movement into our just daily rituals. Yeah, there are obvious benefits to that because it's a way of engaging with life. So if you're able to walk somewhere to do something you were going to do anyway, it it makes sense. If you're able to do the things you need to do to take care of your home or take care of your family or to enjoy activities that you otherwise would do that are part of your life, it does enhance our sense of just 
you know, that ideal fit between who you are and the world around you in that moment to have the, the physical ability to engage with life in that way. It's not always possible. But I also think that, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks I don't have a huge problem with making physical activity something special also, because so many of us need something to look forward to. I mean, if you were to ask me, oh, should I just like turn on a song every hour and dance around my house? Sure. But there's something really special about having something to look forward to, a place where you show up and people know you, a moment in your day where you, you can give everything you've got or you can be a different version of yourself. So I think that there, there are obvious physical and psychological benefits of being active throughout the day. Uh, and also, I, I think it's great that a lot of people treat movement, not so much compartmentalizing it, but as something special because we all need things to look forward to. We need structure in our lives and, and movement can be a way to do that. I've made it a practice now living in New York City for 25 years. You know, I walk a lot and, and I've just made it a practice to always wear running shoes or most mm. of the time if I'm not going to a wedding or something. <laughs> and uh, and I found that if I'm walking to a meeting and maybe I'm a bit late, I think, okay, I'll just run five blocks, you know, and I look kind of ridiculous, right? Because here's this guy sort of dressed for a business casual meeting with a with a briefcase running down the, <laughs> you know, um, but I, I might get there five minutes early. If it's cooler outside, I'm now warm. My mood is improved. Mm -hmm. And and we also know that actually deep breathing improves cognitive function, right? That is one of, one of the many benefits of exercise is just getting more oxygen to the brain kind of lights you up. And so I, I find myself just, just kind of spontaneously running, you know, um, several blocks at a time in, in my movements throughout the city. Well, so here, let me give you the way that I think about this. So I was thinking, okay, what are the benefits of, of just moving throughout the day? And um, we had said we were going to get back to myokines. Yes, So I think this is, this is a good time to think moment. about myokines. Excellent. Excellent, yes. So I think this is the most interesting scientific discovery of the last century, so if you've been sort of drifting on this podcast, wake up. This is this is the thing. <laughs> Your muscles are an endocrine organ. So endocrine organs, they manufacture and release chemicals into your bloodstream that affect every system of your body. Things like digestion and metabolism and bone health and cardiovascular function and your immune system. And we now know that your muscles, they do more than just move you around. They are producing all of these chemicals that they can release into your bloodstream to affect every system of your body. Um, but they do that through muscle contraction, through physical activity. And so your muscles are like this pharmacy. And they're called myokines, which just means you know, pushed out by your muscles. Mm -hmm. um, but you have myokines, these molecules that your muscles manufacture and release that can kill cancer cells and boost your immune function and help make your entire body healthier. But some of them target the brain. And so your muscles secrete these chemicals into your bloodstream through muscle contraction anytime you're physically active that basically travel to your brain and function like antidepressant drugs, like anti-anxiety drugs that make your brain more resilient to stress, that help make the brain more plastic and better able to learn from experience, that make you more responsive to joy and positive emotions, you know, all the things that we want that keep 
your brain healthy. And one of the first papers that described this called them hope molecules. And I stole that name from that paper. Mm -hmm. So now I think of exercise of all forms, any kind of physical activity as an intravenous dose of hope. And every time you choose activity, you're basically allowing your muscles to serve this role. It's astonishing to me. It is amazing. And, you know, this reminds me of the Hazda tribe in Tanzania. You write in the book that they engage in two hours of moderate to vigorous activity a day compared with less than 10 minutes for the average person in the U.S. today, several more hours of light activity. But as you say, physical activity increases with age, whereas in the U.S., activity levels peak at the age of six. <laughs> right? I mean, so, oh, so it's so it's sad just, to think that you might have peaked at age six. Right, exactly, right, exactly, right. <laughs> no, no, but this is, I mean, I, I actually, I'm 55 years old and I, I think I move a lot more today than I did in my 20s, oddly, because you, there is this, this virtuous cycle of, of, of the reward mechanism. You move more, you feel good. And you maintain certain abilities. And it changes over time, too. I mean, so I work with older adults. People's abilities are changing all the time injuries, illnesses, surgeries, life experiences. But no matter what your physical challenges are and what health issues you have to deal with, it's always better to stay active to the degree that you can, to find the ways of moving that give you a continued ability to move. That's its own virtuous cycle. You know, it's it's an important idea to embrace because a lot of people who actually enjoy activity become less active when they're confronted with the realities of an aging body, that you can't do things that you used to be able to do. There's going to be a point in your life where you know what? You're actually not getting faster or stronger. Yeah. So what are you doing it for? How do you continue to find joy and meaning and community and movement when you can't get better? In, in some metric that yeah, is meaningful yeah. to you. It's a very mature kind of joy you have to find. Right, right. And, and, it, and it feels to me like it's, it's that gratitude for what you can do is a mm -hmm. key part of this. And it's really a theme in your book, right? The sense that like, there's so much to be grateful for in our ability to move our bodies to whatever degree we can. Right, it varies mm -hmm. enormously, you know, depending on the individual. I sometimes think to myself that I try to imagine what it would be like to not be able to walk mm -hmm. and then to be able to walk again mm -hmm. and how joyful that would be for me. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, you know, Rufus, walk, walk as if you've just been given back the ability to walk. I mean, think how, how much joy there is in walking and yeah. then think how much joy there is in running. Uh, and this, I, and I, I had this a little bit because I, I couldn't run for six weeks after a, a knee injury some years ago. And I thought to myself, maybe I will never be able to run again, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it really reframed my, my, it just dramatically increased the sense of gratitude. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I didn't do it on purpose, but there are a number of stories in the book about people learning to walk again. I had mm, no intention yes, yes. to do that, but after a stroke, after paralysis and being in a wheelchair and learning how to walk again, after open heart surgery, having to learn how to walk again, part of it is this amazing capacity we have to learn to walk again. But I also mm. think about the stories of people who aren't going to walk again, but find something else to do like box 
in a wheelchair if you're never going to walk again. Mm-hmm, or like mm-hmm. the dancers in the class or people with Parkinson's disease, where that disease only goes in one direction, as far as we know right now, and finding ways to express the music through hands and facial expression if you can't get out of your chair. I often think about all of that when I'm trying to appreciate the moment that I have now to move my body in the way that I can. It's similar to um, a contemplative exercise that I often do at the end of the day where I, I look back over even a day that wasn't a great day. And I think to myself, all right, Kelly, let's imagine it's the end of your life and there's like some roulette yeah. wheel and you're going to be given one day you get to live again and it lands on today. Would you choose it? Would it be worth going through again? Would you be so excited to be able to do what you did today and see the people you saw and live Mm -hmm. life again? And the answer is, I mean, I've had some bad days, but the answer is usually yes. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel that way about movement too. Even when I'm tired or even when something is hard, there's a part of me that is, is also thinking, I'm so glad that I can do this in this moment. Well, Kelly, last question for you. Um, We had your twin sister, Jane, on the show. Yes. (laughs) um, Talking about how we can get better at predicting the future, which is very useful. Um, And for the benefit of listeners, both you and your sister, Jane, you know, earned PhDs, became leaders in your respective fields, you know, Jane in game design and 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 thinking about the future and you, and you in health psychology. The two of you are really a remarkable pair. So as a parent of three boys, I'm very curious to know more about the environment in which you grew up. And, and I asked this same question to your sister. And so I'm, I'm gonna ask you, what do you think were the ingredients? What did your parents do right? I will tell you the number one thing they did right is my mother. So she was a classroom educator. Mm. And there was something about her, this like fierce ability to recognize strengths in children that were otherwise viewed as being incapable or not like the, the students who were not celebrated in a classroom. She had this ability to figure out what they were interested in, what they were good at, and to create experiences that helped them thrive. It was just like a like a superpower she had. Mm. And she did that for us too. Even when what we were interested in went against her her own values and interests. If there seemed like there was anything good that could come out of it, she encouraged us. So as an example, I was always interested in artistic pursuits and dance and fashion. I remember when I was uh, in middle school, she found this class for graduating high school students at a fashion institute in Philadelphia, and she lied about my age to get me in this class. She was always doing <laughs> that sort of thing. Amazing. So yeah, I probably looked a little young to those folks. Um, but she was always looking for ways to give us experiences that taught me to trust my intuition. And there were a lot of times in my career where I made choices that other people thought was not right, like not becoming a tenured professor 
after earning a PhD and deciding to go out and spend half my time teaching movement classes and the other half my time, you know, writing books and teaching classes to the public, not to university students. There are lots of decisions I made that was like, that's because that's who I am. And it's what I want to do. And it's what I care about. So I think that was the best thing. And um, my father did that too, but mostly in the form of being the one driving us to all these places and supporting us through like the actual physical support, which is so important. So what did Jane say? Amazing. I love that. I love that. Okay. Well, here's, here's, uh, we won't keep you in suspense any longer. Here's what your sister said. You know, they always told us growing up that our job was to learn. And they were they were both public school teachers. Uh, we were by no means rich growing up at all. Mm. And but they did everything in their power so that we didn't have to work um, in high school or or even in college. That they wanted it to be our, our job to learn. And they were always asking us, you know, what did you learn today? What do you, what do you want to learn? And if there was anything we wanted to learn, they made it happen. We had a, we got a used Commodore sixty four. I remember in fifth grade we were you know, one of the first families to have a computer. And they they never told me to go outside and play if I wanted to go on my computer and play instead. And it was just always that question of, well, what do you want to learn? What do you want to learn? And letting our curiosity and our instincts uh, really drive us forward. That's interesting. Although also I had like five jobs in college. I, was my sister not working? I don't know. <laughs> I I was working to earn bank because I have always wanted to have that kind of financial stability. Interesting. But yeah, it's pretty similar. Well, that that's inspiring for me as a, as a father. Kelly, thank you for taking time out of uh, teaching your, your extraordinary classes and uh, and, and the rest of your life to be with us today. I just, I just so enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And I want to hear about your dance class that you go to. <laughs> yes, I'll I circle want, back. I want video evidence. That was Kelly McGonigal, author of The Joy of Movement. You can pick up a copy wherever books are sold. Or better yet, download the audiobook and listen while you're running or hiking or biking or just moving your body around in whatever way delights you. And if you have room for even more delight in your life, why not download, you guessed it, the Next Big Idea app. It's loaded with hundreds of audio summaries written and read by the world's smartest thinkers. In just 12 minutes of audio or four minutes of text, you can digest the key insights from big new books like Soul Boom by Rain Wilson and Win Every Argument by Mehdi Hassan. We added those recently, two new book bites every day of the week. All you have to do is go to your app store and search for Next Big Idea. If you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Jay Karuch left us one recently. They said this show keeps them informed and relevant. Happy to help, Jay. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. We love dancing with the team at LinkedIn. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week. 